Hi, I'm Lisa Smith-Henderson, and I'm your host for Alma Am I Racist, an anti-racist pro-black podcast. If you want to know more about what we do, you can go to almaamiracist.com, or you can drop us an email, almaamiracist at gmail.com. Every week, we talk to a different panelist, a black person usually, and we ask questions and try to get an idea of how to become better allies and advocates as white people. And my very first guest on the podcast was Christian A. Smith, and I'm so glad he's back again. We're talking about his book, and in addition to writing a book, Christian has done a lot of other things. Christian owns P-Squared Custom Clothiers. He makes beautiful clothes. He's also an image consultant. He's the pastor and founder of The Faith Community, also the Holy Smokes Cigars and Spirituality Movement. Anything you want to know about Christian, you can find out at christianasmith.com. But the reason we're talking to him today is we're going to explore further his book entitled Breaking All the Rules. One of the things I really like about your book, Christian, is you address the Word of God, not being the literal version. And I talked to an evangelical Christian many, many years ago, and I said, if Jesus came and said, some of the things in the Bible are not true, would you believe him? And he said, no, I would believe the Bible. And I was like, so you would discount your personal experience with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, for what's in a book? And he said, absolutely. So I thought, wow, I I, talk about agree to disagree. Like, I can't even hop on that train. So this is a big point in your book, and I would love for you to talk about it. Yeah, it's the root of it. It's the the root of it. Removing the default question, what does the Bible say about that? Replacing it with the question, how does the greatest commandment apply here? It is ultra important. I think it's I think it's it's important for us to start this portion of the conversation with recognizing that our allegiance to the Bible is much more emotional than it is logical. We weren't conditioned towards the Bible the way that we are through logic. We were conditioned through tugs on our emotions. So we were told these beautiful stories about the Bible before we could ever read it. As kids, many of us who grew up in church, we were told these stories and what they meant. And we were told how important the Bible is. We were told how to interpret certain stories. And we were told that our connection to God is dependent on our allegiance to the Bible. And we were told our connection to God determines if we spend eternity in paradise or eternity in a burning hell. We will literally be on fire forever. That's not about logic. That's about emotion. That scares the hell out of me to think that if I question this Bible, I could spend eternity in hell, on fire, in pain for an amount of time I can't even fathom, we have to start the conversation there. And for anybody who feels that way, I apologize because the church did that to you. It instilled a level of unspeakable fear that if we question the scriptures in any way, shape, form, or fashion, 
God is going to be upset with us and we could potentially go to hell and miss out on heaven. So we have to address that before we start poking all the holes in the Bible. Because I mean, the holes are so obvious once you take that filter off, once you take that biblical inerrancy filter off, man, the holes are so obvious. It's it's almost laughable. It's like, how did I not see this all of this time? <laughs> But you have to be relieved of that fear, that emotional burden of biblical loyalty, because the church develops biblical loyalty in people before it develops biblical literacy. Oh, that's a good one. Biblical loyalty over biblical literacy. Right. So to, so we, we develop biblical loyalty and never truly develop biblical literacy because you can't have the level of biblical loyalty that fundamentalism requires of you and be biblically literate at the same time. The two don't, they don't coincide. You, because you can't, of the contradictions like you talk about. Yeah. You can't, can't say that you serve a God of love that you find in the Bible, but also don't want to acknowledge that there's a God of genocide in the Bible too. God is represented both ways in the Bible. You can't have a God of love and a God of genocide. The two do not correlate in any way whatsoever, but both are represented in scripture. So if we would ever get to a point where we could undeify the Bible, which means remove the Bible from this place equal with God, where it is a collection of writings that speak to us and that inspire us and that inform us. But more importantly, it's an invitation for us to use wisdom. If we don't undeify the Bible, we'll never be able to reconcile this God of love and this God of genocide because we think we got to rationalize it. We have to rationalize all of this because we're loyal to the Bible. So how do I rationalize it? You don't have to rationalize it. That's how the writers of scripture in certain instances identify with God. Just because they identify with God that way does not mean that we are required to identify with God in the same way. Well, and I feel fortunate in that I grew up in the Episcopal church. So I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on sin. Mm. Not once, just wasn't a big deal. And it was always treated as if everything was a story. And I right. remember sitting in Bible study a couple of years ago, and there was somebody who came out of a Southern Baptist tradition, and the priest was like, well, you know, Adam and Eve, it's a story. And she was like, what? Yeah. It's a story? And he goes, <laughs> yeah, they weren't real people. It's just kind of a story. I, she came back, God bless her, but that blew her mind. And she mm -hmm. was in her 40s. It had never occurred to her that Adam and Eve were not real people, that they might be a representation of something. I feel very lucky in that I'm not trying to shed a whole bunch of that thought that everything in the Bible is real, everything in the Bible is true. And You're you very fortunate. Up, yes, yeah. yes. And you bring up something really good in your book when you talk about the translations and how things get and I got your little joke about being lost in translation. <laughs> <laughs> and when people bring that up, sometimes they're met with, what do you mean? It was the word of God. The translation doesn't matter. God translated it. But the truth is, men translated it. That's the emotional tie. 
it's hard to have that conversation with people because they're so clouded by their emotional burden for the scriptures. Like how, how, how did God translate the scriptures? Like, no, people sat down and wrote this stuff at different times, like over the span of 1500 years, they didn't write it in the order in which we have it. As a matter of fact, when people wrote certain portions of scripture, they didn't even realize they were writing scripture. Paul was writing letters to people, you know? So I I use this example. I used to write letters to my grandparents all the time when I was a kid. I would write them a letter and then they would send me a letter back and they send me some money, tell me to, you know, go get a hamburger. So I, you know, I wrote all of these letters. Now, if uh, after I pass away, somebody finds these letters, And they say, look at these letters that Christian wrote to his grandparents. Aren't they beautiful? We should take these letters and publish them in a book. So then you have a book of letters that I wrote. But I didn't write a book. I just wrote letters. Somebody else came after me and published those letters in a book. That's the exact same thing with Paul. All he wrote was letters. And then people came together and said, these letters are good. We should canonize these. We should put them into our holy writ and make them sacred texts. That's that's a man-led process. And you can say, well, God inspired it. Well, then my question is, did God stop inspiring once our predecessors put together the Bible? Is that where God's inspiration ended? Is that what we're saying? I don't agree with that. So this goes back to that whole thing of the holiness of it. And also because you are a a scholar and a theologian, will you talk a little bit about some of the things that were purposefully left out of the Bible and why? Hmm. So the (laughs) putting the Bible together there's there you can take classes on it about how the Bible came together, the multiple translations, um, the fact that the Protestant Bible is different than the Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha, just so many different aspects of the history of the Bible that we can learn. That's not my area of expertise. I do have some insight on it, but I think it's important for us to recognize that. Everything that made it got in intentionally. And the stuff that was left out was left out intentionally because everybody who put the Bible together had an agenda. They had an agenda. So a great example of agenda would be including the term homosexuality in the Bible. That wasn't added into the scriptures, I think, until the 19th or 20th century. There was an agenda for how that term made it into the scriptures. So I believe, and that that gets really heavy, right? Into into biblical authority, biblical interpretation, and just the whole process of canonizing these scriptures, like making them the foundation for the faith. But I'll just say that there's an agenda for everything that made it in and everything that left that was left out. And it didn't just fall from the sky into our laps the way that we have it today. 
Well, and I think the beauty of the greatest commandment theology, which is what your book is all about, is it really boils it down to the, the simplest part. It, it doesn't require us to be a biblical scholar. Right. It requires us to be thoughtful and I think look at what we may think is loving. Tough love may not look like love to somebody else. And that, that's one thing I, I would like for you to talk about a little bit. How is lying to someone not being loving? Even maybe if you think you're lying to protect them. And I'm not talking about, it, I like your hairdo. Um, when you lie to someone in a, in a way that takes away their choice, that's harmful. Where had you told them the truth, they probably would have made their own adjustment. But you lied to them and took away their choice to make whatever adjustment they needed to make. We're not talking about like, oh, you lied to me about this surprise party that you planned for me. Right. Um, it's about deception. It's about lying in ways that cause destruction. I believe that is, it's not black and white, which is difficult for a lot of people. That's why we provide the framework with Greatest Commandment Theology. Am I harming myself? Am I harming my neighbor? How is is this story I'm about to tell going to harm my neighbor in any way? And if so, I shouldn't tell it. Now, sometimes people still tell them, but we should at least know this is wrong. <laughs> I think that's the, the part where a lot of people get get hung up. It's like, instead of just acknowledging, yeah, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. We try to find a way to rationalize it and say, no, it's not. Let me tell you why. No, nah, it's wrong. You hurt somebody. Just say I was wrong. Like, if we just acknowledge when we're wrong and say sorry and say, you know, I'm going to try to not do that anymore, the world would be such a better place. And it seems to me that that is part of this process is making amends and asking forgiveness. Correct. Owning the truth. And then the last piece would be how does forgiveness help us? Like maybe we don't exempt the person from their behavior, but how, do, how does forgiveness help us love ourselves better? Oh yeah. Everything you're talking about goes back to boundary setting. We, we could have dubbed this entire interview about boundary setting because tough yeah. love, tough love is just setting boundaries. That's really all that is. So, so, so when you get into this question of forgiveness, forgiveness is boundary setting. I like to simplify things as much as I can because a lot of stuff is so complex. So I like to simplify by providing frameworks. So I have a simple three-step framework for forgiveness. So if I say that I forgive you, number one, that means I mean you no harm, right? So I'm not going to try to do to you what you did to me. That's the first sign that I forgive you. Then the second step is I wish you no harm. So not only am I not going to try to get you back, I'm not going to secretly hope somebody else does to you what you did to me. <laughs> okay, that's good. The third step is I refuse to be harmed by you any further. That is a big boundary setting piece of forgiveness that people overlook. I can forgive you and not allow you back into the same position that you held before the offense. And if you have hurt me in such a way 
that I cannot recover the same level of trust that I had for you before, I will set a boundary that will not allow you to hurt me the way you did the last time. And in order for me to go through a process of forgiveness, one thing I think is important for us to remember is that the offender should at least stop the offense before they ask for forgiveness. I'm so sick of black people being required to forgive white America and the system while it's still oppressing us. I can't forgive you if you still got your foot on my neck. Take your foot off of my neck and then let's talk about forgiveness. Uh, You know, Christian, the other day I said to my son, I said, I don't even know how black people even speak to us. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, the more I learn, you know, the book club I'm in, the stuff I'm reading, the interviews I do, it's like, I did not earn this trust. I I don't even know. I think it says a lot that black people in America are willing to even be nice to white Americans. Yes, I don't think like every other white American, but for every white American that doesn't necessarily think like me, they're ones that say Breonna Taylor deserved to die because she had an ex-boyfriend who was a drug addict. And I still come up against and embarrassed about, but I'm willing to admit, my white privilege. Absolutely. I am learning gradations of white privilege that I never even thought about. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And I believe believe relationship breaks all the rules. If you look at racial tension between white people and black people, in general, you can make a very strong argument that black people shouldn't have anything to do with white people, but relationships break the rules. So when I can develop a relationship with somebody of a different race, whose race represents oppression for people that look like me, but I know this person individually, I know that this person cares about me. I know this person loves me. I know that this person will protect me and leverage their privilege on my behalf if they were put in a position. That breaks the rules of what I should do in general with white people to protect myself. Oh, that makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) There is hope. And that's the thing, I think, that in this time of, of everything being politically up in the air and unrest and division is we have to remember if we can learn to, to remember what's in your book. The three, love God, love ourselves, love our neighbors, Mm -hmm. then that can help bust through all of this division. Absolutely. I totally agree. And we just have to really practice the framework. You know, this is not it's not a book you read and you say, oh, that was good. And you put it down and you forget that you read it. I wrote this book for life. I wrote this book so that we would start shifting how we think about the faith so that we're no longer automatically thinking, well, what does the Bible say about that? And we start saying, how does the greatest commandment apply here? I wrote this so that we would literally start asking ourselves, am I loving myself right now? Am I loving my neighbor right now? That's a question you can ask yourself every day. So I wrote the book for people to use in their everyday lives now and forevermore. So this is great because I see another podcast in our future. Okay. I would like to talk about fear and anger Mm, and especially anger leading us 
out of anger into love. Sure, I'd love to. Okay. Christian Smith, you are the most amazing person. I am so grateful that I read your book through and through, and I think everybody should. It's a great way, as you said, to start the conversation. The book's Breaking All the Rules, Christian A. Smith, christianasmith.com. Thank you. Lisa Henderson gives it five big, bright stars. <laughs> thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me and allowing me to share uh, on your podcast. I truly believe in the work that you're doing. Well, thank you, and I you as well. Thank you for joining us again this week for Alma Am I Racist, an anti-racist pro-black podcast. If you'd like to know more about the podcast and the movement, go to almaamiracist.com. Join us again next week for another episode and another podcast, Alma Am I Racist. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you next week.